0: Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. This is the word of the Lord. J. Hampton Keithley once wrote, Discipline in the church is not punishment, it is discipline. And discipline is designed to train and to restore. So as I mentioned earlier, that August 22nd of this year will be our 83rd church anniversary here at First Baptist Church. And on that Sunday, we will take a moment and we will reflect on our history as a church and we will talk about the things that we have done over the years and we will remember all of the pastors who have led this church from the very beginning to now. And we will all be reminded of the fact that I am the 15th pastor in the line of faithful men who have shepherded this church over the years. But this week, just this week I realized, as I was thinking about this, um, that, that I have served in this church as a pastor longer than every other pastor before me except for one. In fact, October 7th will be my ninth anniversary here at First Baptist Church, and all the other pastors served here just under uh, eight years was the longest one, except for one, which is Diane Miller's brother, Richard Seymour. He served here for 17 years and 10 months, nearly 18 years, like almost twice as long as I've been here. Um, And certainly, those are big shoes to fill, and I've got a long ways to go. But uh, I might be a really old man by then, so... (laughs) But with that, um, I feel a sense of accomplishment of being here this long. Um, and, and over the years, uh, God has been really patient with me uh, and that He has worked to grow me and change me. And, and, and some of those who've been here the longest hopefully have been able to see that. Uh, I know that Nina Wise encourages me and says that she's seen that growth over the years, but God has grown me and strengthened me. And it's been during that time that God has really helped me to see and to develop. I think some foundational themes on which I've built my ministry. You know, f- foundational themes that we come back to over and over again. Foundational themes that I think that have given our church stability and, and direction. And, and many of you will recognize these themes because I talk about them often, right? You'll hear me say some of the same things over and over again, like the fact that theology matters. If you've been here for any length of time, you've listened more than a couple sermons, you have heard me say that at least once, that theology does matter because it does matter. Right? Or the truth that Christ came into the world to do for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. I repeat that often because that's the truth. That Jesus came in here to live the life that we couldn't live. To fulfill the covenant that we couldn't fulfill. To uphold the law we couldn't uphold. And then he died to make atonement for our sins. Right, That Jesus did. That's the essence of the gospel for us. Right? Or of the resurrection, I, you know, you've heard me say multiple times that the resurrection is proof that, that Jesus is who, God, who he claimed to be, which is God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save us from our sins. Or how about the truth that the gospel is not simply just part of the Christian faith, it is the very center and the essence of our faith. We don't ever grow past the gospel, it is always, always, always about the gospel. Or how about the fact that God is sovereign and in control? If you've been around me more than a few days, you will hear me talk about God's sovereignty at some point. All right, if you sit in my preaching for any length of time, you will probably recognize several of these themes. You can almost say them word for word, like especially when I have something difficult to say, like, "You know I love you," right? Well, there's one more theme I feel that has that been an indispensable part of the foundation of, of my ministry here, and that is to remind you and me. Of the truth that every text in the Bible must always be read and understood in its context right you've heard me say that before and I will say that again as long as I'm here whether if it's nine more years or or, or 90 more years right every text in the Bible has a context every text in the Bible is surrounded by other texts and there is a historical context and there is a cultural context that 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 emanates from the text and also helps us to see the text. And so the meaning of that text must be derived from its context. Otherwise, we just simply are guessing at what a passage of scripture actually means, right? Or worse, we're simply just taking a text and making it fit some preconceived ideas so that it fits our theology. Our brother Hugh, who um, he's been, him and Ann have been gone for you know, a few weeks uh, taking care of uh, Ann's mom. Every time I mention context, I usually end up getting a little text or a note on Facebook that says, a text without context is a pretext, right? And that's the truth, right? Because context matters, as I've said before, and I'll continue to say again, right? Is context is an important part of how we understand the text. And we're going to see that this morning, especially in the verses that we're going to address here. It matters to today's text. So turn with me to First Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to look at these couple of verses Beginning in verse 1, it says, "...do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity." And I've read a number of commentaries and I listened to a number of other pastors on this text preparing for messages. I mean, one of the big parts of what I do is I really do the best I can to get background and I, I read the text, I look at the original language, I listen to what other pastors have said, I read the commentaries of other theologians. and you know, But, but when I read and did the preparation on for this particular text, there were two things that really struck me. Number one is many of the pastors who preached on these two verses here they just simply took them and lumped them together with the the next 14 verses of chapter 5. And what they did was just address them all as one big text, as if they are really just one universal text that covers one idea, rather than treating these things as two different subjects. And as a result, these two verses kind of get passing mention on their way into a bigger section of text on on widows and, and, and ministries of mercy. Number two, by lumping these things together... A number of pastors and commentators would say that, in essence, this entire section of, of, of uh, Timothy is just simply about how we treat each other in the church. In fact, I've seen sermon titles that said, how we treat each other in the church right that this text is simply about church relationships and how people relate to one another right and understand we can actually make that application from the text we can do that right we can look at the text and see and glean some lessons in how we should treat each other and apply this to our lives and it would be wise for us to do so but you need to hear me the text that we're here this before us is not primarily about relationships with other people in the church generically speaking it's not what it's actually about the main point of actually these two texts is not about church relationships. In fact, church relationships and how we treat one another are actually byproducts of the deeper issues that Paul addresses in, this, in these two sections. And so to say that these two verses are simply inseparable from one another... Right? And to say, I mean, from, from the next 14 verses, and to say that, that this is simply just about how we treat each other, is really grossly to, to gloss over the actual meaning of these two texts and ignore the context. Because let me just tell you something, these two verses and verse 14 after that, though they might be related in some sense, right, they're actually addressing two completely different issues in the church. In fact, verses 3 through 16 is about how the church is to address the needs of the truly needy members of the church. It's, it's about true widows. You'll see that, 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 that expression multiple times in that text, true widows. And this text is about, about how to, to minister to them, how to do that, and, and applying wisdom in determining who gets that help and who doesn't get that help. Right? That's the point of the next section that we will address next week. And there's a lot for us to learn and to apply to to ministry. But these two verses here address a whole different issue. These two verses stand alone because Paul is giving Timothy clear instruction on how to handle a very difficult subject. And that subject is personal correction in the church. right? Or specifically church discipline. This text is about church discipline. Paul is telling Timothy how to lovingly and graciously apply correction and discipline inside the church in order to bring correction and healing in the church. Which, by the way, flows right out of the context of the entire letter. Because why did Paul write the letter in the first place? Well, he tells us in chapter 3. He says I hope to come to you soon but I'm writing these things to you so that you may know if I delay how one ought to behave in the household of God how one ought to behave in the household of God Paul wrote this letter to help correct behavior why because the church had slipped off of its theological foundation it had lost sight of the doctrinal truths that makes the church a church and they put into positions unqualified men Of leadership and that they were then teaching false teachings and the result of false teaching inevitably is behavioral issues and sin issues inside of the church that is exactly why Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus his job was to set the church back right he needed to put an end to the false teaching as Paul we saw Paul tell him and that he needed to address church leadership by understanding the qualifications of what qualified leaders really look like Right? And then he then needed to address the behavioral issues in the church. And to this point, Paul has instructed Timothy to deal with the behavioral issues from the pulpit and through the preaching of the Word. And now he's giving Timothy instructions on how to personally deal with these issues on a more one-on-one basis. Because that right there is what a pastor is supposed to do. He is to first address major behavioral issues in the church from the pulpit by laying out the foundation from the Scriptures and from the Word of God so that the entire church can hear and be edified. And, and hopefully through that, many of these things resolve themselves as people hear the truth, apply it to their lives as they become convicted by the Holy Spirit. But then there are times where pastors need there to personally take and address things personally that they are to to address behavioral issues and of individual members through loving correction and applying gracious discipline and that right there is the point of this text in fact let me just let's look at it again and i want to see what what paul says he says do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father now the reason why so many people get confused about this and the, and the reason, is the reason why the original languages are so important. You see, the English word that we have here doesn't do justice for us to really understand what Paul is getting at because the ESV renders the Greek word epiplexes as rebuke. That's what he says, right? And so the King James Version also does the same thing, and so does the NIV, Right? And when you add to it the negative phrase of not, basically gets translated as do not rebuke. But the thing that we need to understand is this word epiplexes is only used right here in this one verse in the entire New Testament. It's never used again anywhere else. And it's not normally the word that gets used for rebuke in the Bible. Actually, what gets used is a different word. In fact, in the same chapter, but in verse 20, Paul writes this, he said, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them. And the word that he uses there is not epiplexes, but elenche, right? which is typically the verb that gets used throughout the New Testament. Because that's what it means. It means to rebuke. It means to reprove. It means to discipline or to expose wrongdoing. The Greek word here is the one that's normally used for rebuke. But here in this text, Paul uses a completely different word. He uses the word epiplexes, which means something actually different. It's related, but it's different. In fact, the word here literally means to strike upon. It means properly to strike someone in a vulnerable place physically. But figuratively, it means to strike somebody with a sharp, right, an insensitive or brutal word. Can you see the difference now? In other words, it means to hit him where it hurts. That's the emphasis of the word. And what Paul is, is saying, that he's not prohibiting Timothy from rebuking members of the church and correcting people in the church. What he's saying is don't be unnecessarily brutal when you are rebuking someone in the church. In fact, the New American Standard Bible actually, I think, does a better job of rendering this text. It says, Do not sharply rebuke. An older man. That's a better understanding of what Paul is driving at here. Don't, it's not don't rebuke him, but don't sharply rebuke him. Don't, don't intentionally, you know, hurt him in the process of correcting him. In fact, the New Living T- Translation, which I don't refer to often, but I think it does a good job of paraphrasing this well. It says, never speak harshly to an older man. That's a different understanding, right? You see, Timothy is to address behavioral issues in the church personally but he's not to do so harshly or brutally instead he's to do so lovingly and encouragingly because that because what is our tendency what is typically our tendency our tendency when we want to bring correction to other people especially when when they're really wrong and they're under our skin is we want to make it sting a little bit right when we're finally fed up it's not enough for us to tell them what we think is we want to like you know, we want to make it hurt at least a little bit. And Paul is saying, you need to avoid doing that. That is not how you correct people. In fact, notice Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. You see, there's a contrast here. He is saying, when you rebuke someone, don't do so in a way that does damage, but do so in a way that actually is encouraging and uplifting and helpful, which then sets our understanding for this entire text, both of these verses. See, this isn't about four different relationship styles. This is actually about the same thing with just four different groups of people because look at the grammar here. The implied, I know you didn't wanna go to grammar school today, but you got to, right? All right. The implied subject of this, this entire set of verses is actually one sentence. The entire subject of this sentence is Timothy. He is the subject. He is the one that's doing something. So it's about him and what he does. Right? Then notice the verbs that are related to him and what he does. There are two verbs that, that, that Paul emphasizes here, which is not to rebuke sharply and, by contrast, encourage. Those are the verbs. And the object, then, of Timothy's actions, the object of what he does, is the four classes of people. Old men, young men, old women, young women. Which, by the way, I don't know if you realize, is a summary of everyone in the church. Because whether you realize that either you're a man or a woman, despite what the world says, right? Or you're young and old, or old, either way, right? So, so you're going to fit in one of these classes somewhere. I'll let you decide where it is that you land on those, okay? Right? But Paul basically is summarizing all the different relationship groups in the church. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is that when you bring correction and you apply discipline to the members of the church, you to do so without being harsh, without being brutal, rather you to be encouraging. And that is the main point of this text. It's about church discipline. And so to simply say that this text is about how we treat each other in the church is to miss a really important and really valuable point that Paul is making. As we said before, in part six of this series, we talked about this briefly when we were in chapter one. We, we, I want to remind you that there are four foundational truths that every church must embrace and live by. Number one, it is the church that ordains leaders that God has called. It is the church who is to to recognize the gift of leadership in the members of the church. It is the church then who is to, to ordain them for ministry. There's no other ordination service that replaces that. Only the church is responsible for that. They are to make sure that whoever becomes a leader inside the church is qualified and called of God. Secondly, the church is to be made up of regenerate members. The people in the church are to be truly born again. That is the church's responsibility to help people make sure that they are of the faith. Test yourselves, as Paul says, right? And then the church is to protect its doctrine. Paul says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. It is the instrument that God is using to declare and to defend the orthodox truth of the gospel. And the church is also then to discipline its members, and its leaders when required to do so. In fact, we said a healthy church is a disciplining church. When teachers engage in false teaching, they are, they are to, be re, to be corrected and rebuked and disciplined. And when the members of the church fall into sin or into divisiveness, right, they are to be gently corrected and rebuked and even disciplined. In fact, uh, pastor and theologian D.A. Carson once noted that there are three things that necessitate church discipline. Number one is major moral issues. Number two is major doctrinal issues. And number three, major lawlessness characterized by divisiveness. You see, a healthy church is one that practices the ministry of correction and discipline. Now, it is an unpopular truth, to be sure. This is one that people want to avoid. But as unpopular as it may be, church discipline is necessary and important part of the ministry in the church. The ministry of rebuking and correction and disciplining is essential to the health of the church. Notice what Paul says about the very word of God and its use. Right? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, a text that we should all be familiar with, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God, that it's theanustos, it is God's very breath, it is His word to us. And as such, it is profitable or useful for what teaching, for reproof, which is rebuking, for correction, and then training in righteousness. The ministry of the word of God is uh, the word of God requires that elders also apply the ministry of correction and discipline when it is needed in the church, and it's a requirement for the office of pastor and elder to not just teach and rule or to oversee the church, but to actually take this personally and seriously. It's a requirement that must be taken with great care. The Puritan Richard Baxter had said this of of pastors who who struggled or did not want to apply discipline. He says, I confess that that if I had my will that man should be ejected as a negligent pastor that will not rule his people by discipline so well as he is ejected as a negligent preacher that will not preach for ruling, I am sure, is an essential part of a pastor's office as preaching. Church discipline is, is important and necessary as a ministry inside the church. Why? Well, because it protects the purity of the church. It protects the purity of the church. The ministry of correction discipline helps to protect the purity and the holiness of the church, the holiness that we all should be seeking to live. Again, we're not looking to be holy to make God love us, right? We live to live holy because God already loves us, and it's a byproduct of the changed life that we have. Louis Burkhoff once wrote that this is quite essential for maintaining the purity of of, of doctrine and for guarding the holiness of the sacraments, Churches that are lax in discipline are bound to discover sooner or later within their circle an eclipse of the light of the truth and an abuse to to that which is holy. Without the ability to deal with personal issues of sin and and divisiveness, without lovingly being able to have those conversations, we run the risk of becoming the very thing that ought to be Corrected. Correction and discipline are means of protecting the purity of the church. And as such, it's, mean, it's the means of protecting the witness of the church. Right? The witness of the church is at stake. One of the greatest obstacles to faith that many people will identify as, as an obstacle of why they don't believe is, is the, the sin inside of the church that tends to get overlooked and gets uncovered, and gets covered up and then suddenly becomes a scandal, right? I mean, we, we hear about it all the time, and not just in the um, not just in the, the Catholic Church we've heard in the past, but we've, we're seeing ripples of this in the evangelical church. How many pastors have we heard about getting caught up in, um, in in moral scandals, or we've heard about you know somebody close to the pastor who you know was a deviant sexually, but they still allowed them to, to volunteer in ministry, and suddenly it comes to a head that there's been this cover up all the years. Those things have happened throughout. History. And that's one of the things that people will point to. Why should I go to the church? Look at those people over there. Now, again, we're not going to ever be perfect, but we should be serious about weeding out progressively the sin in our own lives and in the church collectively. Right? It protects the witness of the church and discipline also protects the peace inside of the church, inside of the church, because nothing brings division and hostility amongst the members of the church faster than sin against one another, or false doctrine. It destroys the peace within the church. It destroys the peace within the fellowship. We've seen firsthand at times in the history of this church in 83 years how, how undealt with sin has created divisions and ripples that still last to this day after 50 years between people. In fact, Matthew Henry says this, he says, the way to preserve the peace of the church is to preserve the purity of it. Church discipline protects the peace of the church by dealing with the things that that bring strife and division. And the ministry of correction and discipline is also for the good of the members of the church. You see, it's not just about the church collectively and corporately, right? It's not just about the group. It is also about the individual members. We ought to be caring for the individual members of the church and their, their, their walk with God and really where they are in that. The ministry of correction and discipline has been ordained by God to set people back on the right track when they stray off. It's a ministry to help them grow. Uh, J. Hampton Keithley as we said, discipline in the church is not punishment. It is discipline. It's designed to to train and to restore. Pastor Jim Eliff adds this. He says, church discipline is one of the primary means that God uses to correct and restore His children when they fall into sin. It's one of the primary means that God uses to put people back on the right track. Church discipline is necessary and important ministry for the church. And it's essential for the health of the church. But the problem is, when it comes to this, because it is a sticky subject and it's really one that's hard to deal with, Many elders and many pastors will will be hesitant, and they will neglect this duty to apply church discipline. Right? Not only is it unpopular, but many will just want to avoid it. A pastor author and author uh, Gregory Brown, in his article, in an article that he wrote, uh, lists really four basic reasons why ministers tend to be hesitant to apply church discipline, and I think you'll recognize maybe a couple of these. Number 1 is out of fear. He's out of fear. Right? Many pastors and elders fear that if they actually deal with things that need to be dealt with, right? That people then will just simply just get mad and leave the church. I mean I've even heard, heard people say that, "Well, if you if you say something to them, they just might leave the church." Well, how will they respond if I confront them in their sin? How will they respond if I address that attitude you know, that, that, they, that, that they're really being rude and, and irritating to other, other members? How will they respond if I correct them in their individual ministry? Will they just turn around and leave the church? Right. Will they just write a nasty thing, nasty review on, on Facebook or Google? I've got one of those, by the way. Right. Will they just stop volunteering and helping? What if they start judging other members, of the, or start, start actually talking to other members of the church behind my back, right? Man, he's just such a jerk, and he's so judgmental, and who does he think he... Right? It's, it's about fear. And the fact is, even the most loving, let's be honest, right? The most, even the most loving and well-intentioned and the, well, the, the best worded correction can still be received in the worst possible way when someone's heart is just not right. And they can certainly, you know, things can certainly fall apart relationship-wise. But the church leader must remember who it is he serves primarily. The minister must remember that his primary service is Christ. And all of us ought to fear God more than we fear men. Now, the second reason that Brown cites for this hesitancy to deal with this is laziness. The truth is correction and discipline are hard work. It's hard work because it requires more than just, let's have a talk. It requires prayer. It requires preparation. It requires study. It requires meetings. It requires getting counsel from mentors and and other pastors. It requires thinking through the issues and thinking about the best way to approach a situation based on someone's personality. It's, a, it's about being prepared for the various ways that a person might or might not respond. What if they lose their mind and start shooting the place up? I mean, you know what I mean? Hopefully it never gets to that, but I mean. And so for some people, it's just simpler and easier to avoid that that uh, that work. In fact, I had a pastor friend of mine who just really just didn't want to do it. He just hated the idea of church discipline, and he just let things go. He just let things slide. And finally, he just got the point in his own church culture that he just decided, I'm leaving. I'm going to different. I'm, I'm going to go pastor a different church somewhere else. Yeah. And, and I'm just going to tell you, it, it was so bad that like he actually had somebody in a leadership position in the church who doesn't even believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. They're not even a Christian, but they're in leadership in the church. And I just... And I actually had conversations, you need to deal with that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Nah, I'm not doing it. But the truth is, pastoring a church is hard work, and so, you know, it's just part of it, right? The third reason people avoid it is because of poor theology. This is probably the biggest reason, right? It's just bad theology. It's a bad understanding of the Word of God. There are people who, in the church... That really you're just shallow in their understanding of the text, or they just will just will go with a popular reading of a text. Like for instance, let's just let's talk about one everybody's aware of, and we've heard used out of context probably, you know, hundred thousand times, especially in this last year. And that is Matthew chapter seven, verses one and two, which say, Judge not, right, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. As if we, ever, we never have any reason at all to deal with sin and ever talk to someone about the issues in their life. Right? By the way, if you actually read that in context, it is actually about judging other believers, but doing so properly. Right? Read the whole thing in context. You'll see that. Citing this text out of context, people will say, well, who am I to judge? I mean, you know, I got my stuff, so why should I you know talk to them this actually leads to the the other issue that we face in our culture which is relativism relativism we live in a postmodern world that's surrounded by a postmodern philosophy and it's infected every institution even many people in the church including those who are in leadership and it's this idea that there is no such thing as objective truth what's true for you is not true for me i mean we've all heard that right before I mean, that's a very popular mantra. You've got to find your truth. You've got to find your truth, your own truth, as if your truth is different than the objective truth that's out there. And so because of that, people feel like, well, I don't have any moral ground to be able to talk about what they're doing because their truth is different than my truth. But hear me, all those reasons are enough for elders or pastors to be disciplined themselves and be removed from ministry, whether it's fear or laziness or poor theology or relativism. The Word of God demands that elders deal with sin. It demands that they deal with divisive issues and behavioral problems in the church. That's exactly why Timothy was left there in emphasis as a model for the rest of us. And those who refuse to do so prove themselves to be unqualified for ministry. And so sin and behavioral issues must be dealt with. But really, why? It's because the consequences of sin. And false theology and divisiveness can be devastating to the members of the church, personally and corporately. One of the biggest reasons people end up leaving the church and one of the biggest reasons why people get hurt typically is because of unaddressed sin. Somebody does something to someone else and they go to the pastor and nobody does anything about it and they finally said, fine, nobody cares about me, nobody loves me, I'm out of here. I don't need them people. We've... we all know people that have experienced that, right? In fact, some of you might have even experienced that in your own life. I don't think you can live very long and not experience hurt on some level from other people in the church because guess what? We're all people. But This is the reason why we must always seek for correction and reconciliation. Sin is destructive to bodies and minds and families and communities and whole churches and even the entire nation as we witness the crumbling of our country right before our eyes, morally speaking. And so church discipline must be applied, but church discipline must be applied with great care, which is exactly the point of this text. Notice Paul says, Do not rebuke or do not rebuke sharply an older man. And as we said before, this does not mean, Timothy's not to rebuke an older man. It's a call to not be harsh in his rebuke. You see, it's not the issue that is the issue. It is how the issue is communicated is, is the issue. Or in other words, it's not what you say that's the problem. It's how you said it is the problem. Can you relate to that? The fact is, sin must be addressed and there must be a clear understanding of the issue and the consequences, but elders and leaders must take great care not to be unnecessarily harsh or pointed or hit them where it hurts. Discipline is not to be punitive. It's supposed to be restorative. And as such, we need to be careful not to inflict unnecessary injuries on people. But we need to also be careful that we're... Not seeking to punish someone with our words and our attitude towards them. Because again, I think that's just all kind of part of our nature. When we're irritated with someone, we're upset with them. We want them to know that we're upset with them. Right? Can we all just get an amen? Like, Right? Yeah? Right? All right. Even when, we, when other people's actions and attitudes are frustrating and irritating to us, we need to be careful in our rebuke. Right? An attempt at pointing out something wrong needs to be done handled with great care. Right? The point is we want to help them to be restored. The point is not to beat them over the head. And I want you to know, like, I mean, I can be good at that whole beating over the head thing. You know? my, my oldest son, one of the things that he always reminds me of, it never was the whoopings that he hated. It was a three-hour lecture that he got right? in the process. In fact, notice Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. You see, church discipline must be done in the spirit of encouragement. What we need to realize is the aim is not simply to point out the wrongdoing or the inconsistency. The aim is to bring correction and restoration and to help the member of the church to grow in their relationship with Christ. In fact, that's the basis of Jesus' instructions in Matthew uh, chapter 15 when he talked about uh, discipline. He says, if you... He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Again, that's the point. It's restoration. But he says, but if they do not listen, then take take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he said, if they don't listen, then escalate it to the next level. But the, the point still remains the same. We want restoration. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or in other words, let him be like an unbeliever. Now many people think that what this means is what you need to do is that it gets to that point, you excommunicate him out of the church and you never talk to them again. And that is not what that means. You may indeed have to, it might get to a point where you have to remove someone from fellowship, but notice Jesus said that they are to be like a Gentile or tax collector or an unbeliever. Well, how do we, are we supposed to treat unbelievers as Christians? Like we do all other unbelievers, with grace and love and patience and caring. We tell them the truth, right? But we still are aiming at restoration within with God. You see, our mission never changes, and our attitude towards people never changes, even when they are giving us the very worst. This must always be our intention when it comes to correction and discipline. We need to act in a spirit of encouragement. In fact, the word for encouragement here is actually parakali, which is the word that is made up of two other words that means literally to come beside or to come alongside of. The the idea of this word is to come alongside of someone in an effort to help them and to guide them. The idea is about encouragement and exhortation and and helping them to get on the right track. It's not, you better get your stuff right, mister. It is, how can I help you fix this? How can I help you get back on track? How can I help you begin to walk with Christ again? What can I do to enable you here. In fact, the word is actually related to the the title that's given of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. The, the, The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. It's the same root word, which means helper. The Holy Spirit is our helper who does what? He comes alongside us and He guides us and leads us and convicts us and strengthens us and encourages us to follow Christ. That is the model that we as as ministers of the gospel, are to emulate. You see, the church correction discipline is not about authoritarian pronouncements and grave directions. It's about lovingly correcting and restoring the members of the church back to a, a pattern of godliness that God is calling us to. It's about lovingly telling the truth and calling people who need it to repent and believe. It's about calling people back to their first love, which is what? Christ Himself. It's about finding someone who's wandered off the path and then taking them by the hand and loving them, lovingly leading them back. That's what correction and discipline are supposed to be about. And if this text were simply about how we treat each other, we would miss this really important, but beautiful truth. Pastors need to apply lovingly, Church discipline to the congregation when there is error in action or word or attitude. They need it to be careful, not to be harsh, but do so in a spirit of gentle encouragement. And it's to be also done, notice here, and, and with familial respect. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Pastors will lead their church. They need to remember that and keep in mind the truth that those who need correction are just not simply people that they are responsible for. They're family. Paul said that the church is the household of God, it is the family of God. Jesus Christ, and John tells us that he gives to all those who believe the right to be what? Become children of God. Paul tells us that we're given the Spirit, the gift of adoption, so we can do what? Cry out, Abba, Father. We are a family. Even at times when we get cross threaded with each other and get on each other's nerves and get on each other's skin, even when we don't see eye to eye, even when we need correction, we are still indelibly family. And this should impact our actions toward one another. Because how are you to treat your father? With deep respect. And how about your brother? In the spirit of camaraderie, hence the term brotherly love. And how do you treat your mother? With dignity and honor. And how do you treat your sister? With tenderness. Because brothers are supposed to to look after their sisters. In fact, one of the funniest things in my life is when I realized that when it comes to my daughter, some boys are really afraid of me, right? But they're really afraid of her big brother, my oldest son. I mean, there's something about being in the military and being a powerlifter and being somebody that's a scrapper kind of makes people nervous, you know? Brothers are to, are to treat their sisters with a special kind of tenderness, You see, the overarching idea is to remember, as leaders of the church, the very people that we may have to correct and apply discipline to are our family, and we must treat them and love them as such. But notice there is one more detail here that Paul says. He says, "...do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity." Correction and discipline must be applied and done in purity. It must be done with a proper motive, which, brings, which is to bring correction and restoration and glory to God. It must be done not with selfish reasons or po- political motives, and it certainly must never be done in order to leverage power over another person. Which, by the way, is the huge real danger that happens in the world around us, right? Being a pastor or an elder or a church leader, it's a leadership capacity, right? And by implication, there is already authority invested in whatever leadership position a person has in the church. And if it's not handled correctly, this authority can create an unhealthy power structure that can be dangerous. We've seen it. Because he, he says, treat younger women as your sister in all purity. You see, if there's any relationship dynamic that can get weird in the church and get sideways really, really fast, it is a man in a position of authority and a younger woman under that authority. And it's a power structure that can be manipulated by either one of them, by the man or the woman. We've heard the horror stories. We have seen it. Hence the reason why I have a camera in my office. Whenever I talk to anyone, I've got a video of that. We've seen it all, right? All over the world, even in the church, men who use their power to create situations to build unhealthy and illicit relationships and women who use their femininity to entice and seduce men. This dynamic, by the way, is as old as time itself. Elders and pastors must keep purity and the honor of God in the forefront of their minds and guard against any and all potential abuse. And I would add that we as leaders in the church, must also create a church culture that does not have tolerance whatsoever for any kind of abuse. Period. Correction must be done in purity. And it must also be done in the Spirit of Christ. Christ is not only our Lord and Savior, but He is the model that we are to follow. We're following Him. We're to be conformed into His image, and as such, we're to be like Him, which reminds me of John 114, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came into the world full of both grace and truth which means we ought to live and walk like Him in both grace and truth. We need to walk in grace and be loving and encouraging and not harsh. But at the same time, we need to walk in truth and we need to tell people the truth and deal with sin and division and behavioral issues in the church. We need to tell people the truth even when it's hard to tell them. So we need to walk in both grace and truth. But we need to understand loving people this way is not easy. Loving this way, people this way is not easy. It can be very hard. Loving people this way is hard, but it is worth it. It can be hard at times to walk in grace and truth. It can be difficult to, to not allow our frustrations to make us irritated and harsh in our words and deeds. It can be hard to continuously encourage someone and love on someone. When it doesn't seem to be making any difference. I mean, how many of you have experienced that where you're just loving and caring and encouraging and doing what you can and that person just keeps bumping their head on the same stupid wall over and over and over and over again? It can be hard, but it's worth it because it preserves the unity of the church. It preserves the unity of the church. Sin divides and purity unites. Correction also reminds us of our need for grace. And it keeps us humble and helps us to see that we need to be gracious towards others and point them continually back to Christ. Loving people this way preserves unity. But it also strengthens relationships. Because this kind of correction removes the barriers that can divide members. We all know what it's like to have unspoken issues that we just don't deal with that just begin to be walls that just grow and grow and grow and grow. Those who get on equal ground and get eyeball to eyeball and work through the difficult issues actually become stronger for it in their relationships. Loving people this way strengthens relationships, but it also glorifies God. God is glorified when the church is united. God is glorified in a church that is holy and set apart. God is glorified in a church that is pursuing Christ-likeness. God is glorified when the members of the church are walking in obedience and pursuing godliness. Loving people this way glorifies God, and it also strengthens the church. Loving correction and church discipline keeps church members on the path towards spiritual maturity, strengthening the church itself. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that exact thing. He says, rather speaking, notice the words, speaking the truth in love, telling each other the truth, but also doing so in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, even when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Love Loving correction and discipline strengthen the church. Now, obviously, this text again is about pastors and elders and how they are to conduct themselves. And it's about the ministry of correction and discipline. But, these, but, but like so many other things, the way that elders and, and leaders live, it is a worthwhile thing for the members of the church to follow as a model. Right? Just as a member of the church ought to mimic an elder's pursuit of godliness, the way that they live in right relationship with their fellow members of the church, they should also live in this way and how we treat one another and how we handle difficulties and disputes. Right? We need to do so in a way that's not harsh. And by working and encouraging and coming alongside each other, remembering that we are family and being pure in our motives and settling these things. Members of the church ought to live this way toward other members of the church. But they also ought to live this way towards non-members and unbelievers in grace and love. But also, I just wanted to take a quick mention of the members of the church ought to live this way with respect to their pastors as well. And I say that is one of the more tragic issues in the church is everyone expects the pastor to be patient and loving and gracious in dealing with other people's issues. But then that same standard doesn't seem to get applied to those who get upset with the pastor it suddenly becomes a different set of standards, right? Or or those who think that the pastor's wrong about something or, or they think that the pastor didn't handle something the right way. It has been my experience that most people, when they get upset with the pastors, they will take their grievance to everyone else in the world except for the pastor. That they will complain to the deacons and they will complain... To those that they see as church leaders, and they will even complain to those members of the church that seem to be more influential than others. But most of the time, when the pastor hears about it, it's like long after the issue has been an issue, and they usually hear about it third or fourth hand. Not to mention, some people will just even just take their issues to, to social media and make obscure, passive-aggressive posts about the church or about the pastor. It's happened a few times. Or even worse, I think the worst one for me is they just simply vanish. They just leave the church and never come back and never even giving, give the courtesy to the pastor of, of loving him enough and respecting him enough to just come and say, hey, I got some things I just really don't feel comfortable about. I'd love to just at least let you know. Right? The reality is we need... All of us, members, leaders, pastors, all of us need to be encouraged. All of us need to be treated like family. All of us need to be told the truth. We all do. Not any one of us is perfect. We need to be told the truth, but in a way that's loving and not selfish, and that really aims at bringing correction and restoration and not settling scores. And all of us ought to walk in a way that way towards one another. In fact, I think that's the application for this text. Like Though this text is about correction and discipline itself, we certainly can make application how we treat one another. And the first thing I want to encourage all of us, every single one of us to do, is to walk in grace and truth. This is like another one of those themes of my ministry you've heard me talk about over and over again. And there's a reason for it. We ought to be like Jesus this way and walk in grace and truth. All of us ought to walk in grace, loving and encouraging and being respectful to one another and remembering our need right, for grace ourselves. You needed the grace of God just to get up out of bed this morning. It is by His grace that you took the next breath. It is by your grace that your car started. It is by your grace that you have food in the the cabinet. It is by His grace that the world isn't on fire right now. We all need to remember that we need that grace. And we need to give each other that grace and the best of ourselves and be very quick to forgive and to show love. We need to walk in grace and also truth, though. One of the most loving things that you can do for another person is to be truthful and tell them the truth. We need to be real and we need to be truthful in a way that's founded upon the Scriptures. Which means we ought to know the Scriptures. We need to seek to mend relationships by being clear and truthful in our dealings with one another. Every day it should be our mission to walk in grace and truth and follow Christ together. That's the first application. The second application is similar to what we talked about last week, and that is to be shepherdable. We talked about this last week. It's like being coachable, it's like being teachable. Be shepherdable, as Paul says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account to God. One of the most important ways to apply this truth is to be cooperative and shepherdable. But what does that mean? What it means is first of all understanding if there's ever a time that there needs to be a a conversation for correction or discipline. Right? If I'm ever in that situation with one of you, I want you to know I'm not looking forward to that day. Okay? I'm not sitting there going, I just can't wait to get them down, sit them down, and talk to them. Right? You know, that is not. I mean, those conversations are hard to have. Right, But I'm willing to have them because I love God and I want to honor Him and I love this church. I want to do right by the church and I love you because I want to see you grow and mature in your faith in Christ. Right, And I certainly don't want for there to be difficulty or awkwardness between us. Please understand, right? If there's ever a time, please know that that... that Occasion happens out of great love, which then I would say is accept the correction graciously. Knowing from the place that it flows, it flows out of love, knowing that it's a desire to do right by God and by the church and by you. And understand, right, we are family. And my aim is always to love you and treat you like like the family members you are. I would just simply ask for the same kind of love and grace and respect in return. We are a family who is seeking to live together in a covenant community in a way that honors God corporately, but also individually. And that means we are knit together in the deepest possible levels. We're not only just part of Christ, we are part of one another. And we ought to seek, all of us, to live that way.